Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. Hi, thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Suspending the Rules from the Bloomberg Government Legislative Analyst Team. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Danielle Parnas. The pre-election recess has finally taken hold on both sides of the Capitol. The House has been out campaigning for a couple weeks now, and last week the Senate wrapped up its business until the lame duck session after the election. For the next few weeks with Congress away, this podcast is going to focus on that lame duck session and on the campaign itself. We'll have more on the run-up to November 6th in the second segment. We're starting this week's show, though, with a look at one of President Trump's biggest demands, which until now Congress has mostly ignored. Money for a border wall, which we talked about a little bit in an earlier episode. But now, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy has introduced a bill that would appropriate more than $23 billion for the wall and related infrastructure over seven years, among some other things. BGov budget and appropriations reporter Jack Fitzpatrick joins us now to help us break down that bill. So this is a big deal because it actually would appropriate money, not just authorize it. Can you tell us a little more about that and about what's in it in general? Yeah, generally, this is sort of a, a red meat conservative immigration bill by Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy. And yes, the most notable part is that it would appropriate $23.4 billion for the border wall. Along with the $1.6 billion they got last year, that would take them up to the whole $25 billion total. So this is sort of the big thing that is, it's essentially Donald Trump's wish list for money for the border wall. There are also about half a dozen policy measures in there. Most notably, it would withhold money from so-called sanctuary cities. There's even more just sort of political things like a measure that would denounce the abolish ICE talk. So within the spectrum of the discussions that have already occurred, this is way to the right. Previously, there had been the discussion about do we do $1.6 billion again, which is what Trump requested in his February budget proposal. Do we do $5 billion, which is what he later sort of informally requested. It is worth noting this one would only put up $5.5 billion in the first year, and then it's advanced appropriations. So at least as it plays into the spending cap discussion, it's $5.5 billion against the fiscal 19 numbers. But it's a huge deal because it would lock in the entire total amount of money that Trump has asked for through fiscal 2025. Something notable, I think, for its absences in this is a, a DACA fix. There, there's nothing in here for uh, young kids brought in uh, as minors. There, there's really no hint of compromise in this bill at all. Right. This is all the way to the right. Previously, if if there was a discussion about meeting that $25 billion total, Democrats would say, okay, we want a permanent solution to DACA. And then other than that, there was a policy rider in the House Homeland Appropriations Bill that for fiscal 2019 would essentially leave in place DACA protections in exchange for for that $5 billion that House appropriators agreed to include, even though that's more than three times the amount the administration originally requested. It's it's been a give and take so far, and and, and so you, you kind of have to look at this bill, which is not a give and take and is more or less just a wish list of what Republicans would like to give Donald Trump as almost a restart on staking out a negotiating position. Previously, you had sort of the moderate Senate bill and the more conservative House bill now you have sort of the ultra-conservative House leadership bill from Kevin McCarthy. 
So where does that take us to the Senate? We've heard that Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Richard Shelby doesn't seem to be on board with it. Why not? And, and what are the prospects there? Well, it's notable that before this came out on Friday in the afternoon, Senate appropriators, House appropriators, really nobody who has been working on this issue was told anything about what would be in the bill, including whether it had appropriations language or just authorization language. That's kind of a big deal for appropriators to know. A very big deal. So this kind of came out of left field. Again, they haven't had much time to discuss this exact setup of $5.5 billion in year one and then tranches of $1.7 to $2.2 for the next six years after that. But the immediate reaction from Richard Shelby, who obviously is important in all this, was this is a quantum leap away from what we've been discussing. And he said, as of late last week, he still was looking for a compromise number between 1.6 and 5 billion rather than 5.5 in year one and locking in the total amount of money that Trump wants. Also, Democrats obviously say this is crazy and that there's there's no way this would pass the Senate where you need 60 votes. So it's again, it's sort of a new negotiation position from McCarthy saying, here's what we really want if we got everything we wanted. So let's say the bill goes nowhere. Either either they don't bring it up in the House or, or it dies in the Senate. Would President Trump be willing to sign any more spending bills to avert a partial shutdown on December 7th without this kind of funding for his wall? That's a great question because there are at least two tranches of bills that they want to pass. He even kind of threatened to shut down ahead of the big spending package that he did sign into law covering defense, labor, HHS, education, and a CR for everything else ahead of the end of the fiscal year. So he he has not said specifically, if I don't get border wall at this specific time, here's what I won't sign. Obviously, he wants a good deal for whatever includes Homeland Security. But keep in mind, they didn't finish that other four bill spending package that covers interior financial services, transportation HUD and agriculture FDA. So the big question that this raises now is if Trump wants to dig in his heels and fight for border wall funding and maybe trigger a shutdown down to the maximum effect, would he refuse to sign both the Homeland Security Bill, the Commerce Justice Science Bill, the State Department Bill, and that other four-bill package? We haven't gotten any indication, so we're still kind of in a, a mode where we're asking ourselves how big exactly would a shutdown be if there were the, a shutdown for the rest of the government that hasn't been funded over this border wall? At what point do we start talking about a full-year CR for some of these other agencies? There's already been at least a little bit of a discussion of what the ramifications would be there. It's notable that we have about 80% of discretionary spending covered already for the full year. And the more you lower the stakes for a shutdown, there are some lawmakers who will say the longer that shutdown might go, or especially the reliance on a CR. For departments like Homeland Security, uh, the State Department, as far as employees go, I was looking at the directions in case of a shutdown, the vast majority of their employees are considered essential for those two, at least. When it comes to a CR, if, if it's 20%, maybe only 10% of discretionary programs, if they do manage to pass that four-bill spending package, that's not quite as significant as when you ask Republican lawmakers who are really opposed to CRs, they say it's because of the Department of Defense, mostly. Mm -hmm. That's already covered for this year. And it's also interesting or important to note that the last CR wasn't just funding for the remaining federal agencies, but it also had 
had extensions of a lot of expiring programs, which presumably, unless they passed a different package to deal with those, you have things like the Violence Against Women Act, um, temporary assistance for needy families. There's the separate farm bill negotiation going on. So the spending conversation isn't happening in a vacuum. Right. The fact that those conversations continue on actual policy areas, I guess, adds some weight to the necessity to pass something and makes it a little tougher or at least more high profile if they fail to pass these bills. But again, that may just add leverage to anyone who wants to say, if I don't get what I want, I am going to very significantly and dramatically shut down the government or stall real work. So it's tough to predict, especially after the election, and we'll see how much sort of momentum Democrats feel like they've gotten in the House and how that's going to play into it. But it, it is definitely different than other years in terms of the normal ramifications of which parts of the government are held up by a stall in these talks. Well, whatever happens on the spending front, Jack will have us covered with the latest at Bloomberg Government. We'll be right back with a look at the midterm election campaign. Here at Suspending the Rules, we're really focused on what Congress is doing more than what's happening in the world of politics. But sometimes you get peanut butter and our chocolate, and it's hard to keep the two apart. With three weeks until the country votes in this year's midterm elections, now is one of those times. Bloomberg government elections reporter Greg Giroux joins us now to talk about the campaign, and Jack Fitzpatrick has stuck around to help us look at some of the ramifications for the rest of this year. So big picture, what are the chances one or both chambers change from Republican to Democratic control? Well, the Democrats are well positioned to win control of at least the House of Representatives. They need a net gain of 23 seats to achieve a majority. Historical evidence shows that the uh, party that does not control the White House almost always makes ample gains in midterm elections like this, the average result of a midterm election for the out party is a gain of 26 House seats. So if the Democrats hit that average, they will win the majority. They've made the playing field of competitive seats very large. They're contesting dozens of Republican-held seats. The Senate is much more difficult for them to achieve a majority because the Democrats have a very forbidding map of the 35 Senate races at stake on November the 6th. The Democrats are the defending party in 26 of those seats. It's the most lopsided map I've seen since before World War II, and Democrats have 10 10 seats to defend in states that President Trump won. The uh, the big sort of takeaway for appropriations, especially, uh, as I mentioned before, is there's going to be a certain sense of how much momentum House Democrats have gotten if they're likely to win the majority. The question is, do they go well over that majority? And do they say, look, if we want to wait until the next Congress instead of accomplishing these, of actually passing these bills in the lame duck, we'll just have more leverage then? The, the, that's the big question especially for policy riders that House Democrats have failed to, to get into bills. There was a debate over the census citizenship question that Jose Serrano failed to get into the House appropes bill. The senators didn't put it into theirs. He has said he still wants to re-up that fight, and if Democrats win enough seats, then they will have a little more leverage in that for that negotiation, for example. You could, you could definitely see that with some more liberal policy riders that Democrats have wanted to insert into the appropriations process. On the Republican side, are, are is the, 
the GOP leadership in the House planning any contingencies for the lame duck if they do lose control of the chamber in November? Uh, as far as the House, I mean, the the expectation is that they will lose the House side. The Senate side, there there are fewer contingencies. If it were if it were Democrats controlling both chambers, then that would really change the negotiations, especially on Homeland Security, border wall, probably the Department of Justice within that CJS bill. Sure. A lot of the, the hot topics would change drastically. The expectation all along has been there will either be a split Congress or if Republicans could somehow hold on to the House, they would have so many fewer votes than they do now that within the context of passing something with 60 votes in the Senate, it will need to be bipartisan either way. So they, they haven't thought much too much about the Democrats winning both chambers. The expectation is it's going to have to be very bipartisan. Greg, there are exciting races all over the country. What are some of the bellwethers you're watching to get an idea of how things could shake out? I'm watching a bunch. There are probably several dozen in the House, but one that sticks out includes a race in central Kentucky, which has a 6 p.m. poll closing time on Election Day. So that's going to be one of the very first races I watch. President Trump was just in that central Kentucky district over the weekend to stump for Republican Congressman Andy Barr. He has a very significant Democratic challenger in Amy McGrath, a former fighter pilot. Uh, Virginia, where polls close at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Election Night, there are at least four competitive races worth watching, including one in the D.C. suburbs between Barbara Comstock and Jennifer Wex in the Democratic state center. And I'm looking at states like Minnesota, where there are four out of eight districts that are highly competitive. Pennsylvania, where a redistricting plan has created opportunities for Democrats to uh, have more takeover opportunities. And also Orange County, California, usually a Republican bastion where there are four highly competitive races for seats Republicans currently hold that Hillary Clinton defeated Donald Trump in the 2016 election. And over in the Senate, I'd say there are probably about 10 races I'm worth watching. The big five I'm watching, I think, are those of five Democratic senators defending seats in states that Donald Trump won by at least 18 percentage points. West Virginia, North Dakota, Indiana, Montana, and Missouri. And also Florida, which Trump won more narrowly. There's a great race there between Bill Nelson and Governor Rick Scott. Four races I'm watching where Republicans are the defending party. The two big pickup opportunities for Democrats are Arizona and Nevada. And then, you know, longer reaches for the Democrats include Texas and Tennessee. So it sounds like the Senate is still pretty much up in the air, although would you say it leans more toward Republicans at this point? Yes, I think while Democrats are well positioned to win control of the House of Representatives, it's much more difficult for them to do so in the Senate just because of that very difficult map they're facing. The Democrats basically ran the table in 2012, and they have to defend all those seats six years later this year. That's making it very difficult for them. So that usually the House and the Senate kind of move together in elections. When there are gains for one party in the House in a midterm, there's usually gains for the same party in the Senate. But it's just not apples to apples with the House just because of this very atypical Senate election map that uh, favors Republicans. So say election night comes around, we're all watching. What are the odds midnight strikes and it's November 7th and we don't have a clear idea uh, who's in charge of, of either chamber? Well, I've done enough elections to know that midnight on election night is actually kind of early in the evening, <laughs> early in the early in my coverage. But it really just depends on how close the races are, how quickly the votes are counted. Are there any delays? One reason why there's at least a small chance that this election could go well into the wee hours, if not, you know, if not for a couple of days afterwards, at least, is that you have a lot of competitive races in California where the votes is very heavily done by mail. And California has a very drawn out, deliberate process of counting ballots that are uh, cast by mail. You only have to postmark 
those ballots on election day. They can actually come in a couple of days after the election. Washington State uses vote by mail. And of course, we with the time zone differences, California polls don't close until 11 p.m. Eastern time. So over in the Senate, the Democrats need a lot to go their way to kind of pull to a 50-50 tie or at least create the, uh, the possibility that the Senate will be up for grabs. But there will be a runoff election almost certainly three weeks after Election Day in Mississippi, a Republican state. But suppose um, it could be election night. It's 49 to 49 the Senate. We have Mississippi to uh, kind of decide maybe we have a race or two that's still too close to call a day after the election. So anything's possible. I've seen a lot of strange things in, in politics uh, this late in the election year. All right. We'll be keeping our eye on it. That's all for this week. Thanks to Jack and Greg and belated happy birthday to you, Jack. Thank you. We'll be back with another episode next week. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Find out more about the topics we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bgov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information can be found at premiumbeat.com.